opportunity to introduce a combination of beauty, talent, brains, charm, grace, and all that kind of thing. Uh, Ariana Stasinopoulos Huffington has just published her sixth book, which is available to you out of the We've had her here before. Uh, at the time she published her book on Picasso, she came here and uh, we had a very spirited discussion. She is a wife, a mother, a commuter between here and Washington and elsewhere. And it gives me the greatest pleasure to introduce one of our distinguished citizens, Ariana Stasinopoulos Huffington. Thank you very much, Paul, for this wonderful introduction. I wish my parents had been here to hear it. My father would have enjoyed it and my mother would have believed it. <laughs> it's particularly moving for me to be here exactly four years, no, six years later. I was here in 1988, six years ago, talking about Picasso, before I had any children and consumed by the longing to have children. And here I am now with Isabella, my three-year-old, on the stage. <laughs> and my five-year-old somewhere outside, not quite sure she wants to hear her mom again. It really has been such a dramatic uh, difference in my life, and this book is a product of all those changes in the last six years. A year ago, I was in Washington speaking at a conference, and I joked that I was really born in Fresno, which is something that Larry Crandell started with here when he introduced me a couple of years ago somewhere, and he said that she was really born in Fresno, but she has cultivated this accent to give herself an air of being an ethnic minority. And I received to date, because the speech was carried by C-SPAN, 27 letters from people asking me how exactly did I go about changing my accent. Two of them were from Fresno. In the, in the same speech, I joked that in the last election, I said I nearly voted for Ross Perot, not because I really believed that he would fix the economy, but because he was the only presidential candidate who did not jog. And I said, I was, <laughs> I was tired of presidential candidates who jogged. I said, Abraham Lincoln did not jog. Jack Kennedy did not jog. He ran around, but he didn't jog. <laughs> But they didn't get that joke either. You know, Washington is too much of a company town, and people do not have a tremendous sense of humor. I just flew back uh, two days ago, and I was reading about Edward Everett Hale, who was the chaplain to the Congress, and, and um, they asked him if he often prays for the congressmen and the senators, and he said, no, he said, I look at them and I pray for the country. But it's wonderful to be here among writers, away from uh, the rough and tumble of politics. This uh, book, uh, The Fourth Instinct, was an idea that came to me 17 years ago. I had just finished my second book, a book called After Reason, which was my least successful book commercially, but perhaps my favorite book. And uh, in the course of writing that book, which was about the spiritual roots of our culture and the spiritual dimension that was missing from our culture, I realized that there was really an instinct a universal longing in all human beings to reconnect with God and to reconnect with the spiritual dimension. And I called it then the fourth basic instinct. In fact, if you open that book on the dust jacket, you will see the publisher saying, Ariana Stasinopoulos, as I was then called, is now working on her third book, The Fourth Basic Instinct. Well, life had different plans for me, and I was asked to write a biography of Maria Callas, and then of Picasso, and then a book on Greek mythology before I was back with The Fourth Instinct, which of course was perfect, as it often happens in life. Because first of all, I learned to write by telling a story. If you take After Reason, my second book now, it's an extremely academic, cerebral book. I was arguing for an idea, and then I had to learn how to tell a story and not be didactic, but bring the reader in through the telling of the story. 
But the idea remains the same. The idea that beyond the first three instincts, there is a fourth that drives us to the real fulfillment of our, of our human nature. Now, the first question I want to answer is, what are the first three instincts? The first, of course, is survival or self-preservation. And like all the instincts, it has a positive and a negative manifestation. The positive is clear. There is that instinct that immediately activates the fight or flight mechanism whenever we are confronted with real danger. The negative manifestation is that often this fight or flight mechanism is activated whether there is real danger or not. We are lying in bed at night, we hear a sound, we immediately assume the worst. Somebody is going to burglar us. We are on an airplane, get a little bumpy, we assume there's going to be a plane crash. Our husband or our wife is half an hour late, we assume they've been in a, cra in a crash. That's what psychologists call free-floating anxiety. And our body registers this in the same way as though this was a real threat to our survival. And the stress is activated, and that's what many medical doctors are now in agreement leads to tremendous stress and tremendous uh, really buildup of poisons inside the body, which is the beginning of disease and sickness. As Mark Twain said, and I quote him in the book, there were many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. <laughs> so what I'm saying in the book is that when, you, when we connect with the fourth instinct, a lot of that goes away because we are able to live much more in the present and not be dominated by all those free-floating fears that otherwise dominate our lives. The second instinct is the instinct that we see developing in children at about the age of two. It's the instinct to assert ourselves in the world, to make our own place in the world. When Isabella was two, everything was me, me, me. The entire world was seen in terms of Isabella, which of course is very adorable when you are two and much less adorable when you are 52. <laughs> the problem is when we remain stuck in this instinct, which then becomes, of course, the drive for success, for recognition, for money, for fame, and there is nothing wrong with the, any of these things in themselves. It's when we think that they are going to give us ultimate fulfillment that the problems start. And as I, as I, I think we may have to do something about my musical accompaniment, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think we may have to get the aunt up on the stage. <laughs> this, is, this is my sister Agapi, which in Greek means love. So the, the second instinct de demonstrates to us that we can truly affect, if she likes the stage, you see, <laughs> we can truly affect the direction of our lives much more powerfully if we are not completely attached to everything that happens outside, to all our goals, and to the fulfillment of all our dreams. I write in my book about my own experience in my own life, about how often, whenever I was too afraid of failing, too afraid of taking risks, that was the worst part about trying to fulfill my dreams. It's very often in taking risks, in being prepared to fail, that we actually reach our greatest successes and fulfill our dreams. I have a little saying on my desk that, um, that says, uh, ships in the harbor are safe, but that's not what ships were made for. You see, so often we start a lot of projects in our heads, especially we writers. You know, we have this novel and this short story and this um, article about the state of our culture. And then instead of putting energy into any one of these, we don't put energy into any of them very much. So I have a little saying on my desk that says you can complete a project by dropping it. Now what that means is that if you say to yourself, I'm going to learn German, or I'm going to write about this, and then you don't really do anything about it, you may decide every six months to review all those incomplete projects and decide which ones are you really going to put your energy into and which ones are you going to drop. Two years ago, I watched a Wagner opera, and I said to myself, I'm going to learn German. That's such a fabulous language. And that was kind of over there draining energy. 
Now, six months later, as I was reviewing my mental closets, I said to myself, listen, you're never going to learn German. So as far as I'm concerned, our German is complete. I still don't speak it, but I have dropped it. <laughs> so you, I really encourage you all, every six months or so, to review all those incompletions, because incompletions drain energy. It's a psychological fact. And the cleaner our mental closets are, the more we can be present with our present projects and put our devotion and our commitment and our 100% energy into those. A friend of mine who's been very successful in business says that he starts each day by writing down three things that he wants to accomplish this day. And he doesn't do anything else until he goes through those three. Because do you know what happens most of the days in our lives? We try and do all the easy things first. And the things that we really want to do that are really important, we leave for the end. When we have the least amount of energy, when we are drained, when we want to go to bed or eat a pound of ice cream or whatever just to keep us going again. So that's really what I'm saying about concentrating all our attention, because attention is really a divine attribute on what we really feel is the most sacred and the most important task ahead. And that also, the recognition that there is a fourth instinct, that there is trust and gratitude and a connection with God that we are all heirs to, is perhaps the greatest tool we have. Because it's very easy to be fearful whenever we undertake something new. Fear seems to be part of the human condition. And when we recognize that the kingdom of God is within, whatever religion you may believe or not believe in, there is something about the recognition that we are not just material beings, which is very powerful in fulfilling even our material dreams. I was recently doing an interview in Washington. I've just come back from a book tour. Uh, you know those book tours where as you are um, switching channels at night, you often see the classic book tour interview. It's a, a writer, a host, and a potted plant. And halfway through the interview, you realize that the potted plant knows more about the book than the host. <laughs> I'm really amazed. You know, they ha I think they have now given up even reading the dust jacket. You, <laughs> you get questions like, God, where's your accent from? Where were you born? I thought, you know, if you just read the dance track, it says she was born in Greece <laughs> in 1950. Even my age is there. Um, so it makes kind of for interesting interviews. And one of, on one of those interviews at 7 o'clock in the morning in Washington, I said to the interviewer, you know, when you connect with your fourth instinct, all the other instincts are better too. And she said to me, you mean even sex is better? And that brings me to the third instinct, which is about sex. Now, Freud tried to make us believe that sex is everything, that everything is reduced and reducible to our sexuality. And the truth is that sex is only one part of our being. And the truth is also that when we do connect with our fourth instinct, everything is better, including sex, because we're not so afraid of intimacy. Fear of intimacy, as I write in the relationships chapter in my book, is often fear of God. No fear of being vulnerable in a relationship, fear of being really open, completely open with each other. And that's what is critical to understand in terms of really achieving a successful relationship. I'm just so tired of all those sex manuals, you know, 35 ways to achieve orgasm or multiple orgasms. I wonder, sometimes I, I cannot believe that they are still coming out, one after the other. Because we try to reduce everything to technique. We try to take really the heart out of everything, the spirit out of everything, and reduce it down to something quantifiable and something that we can supposedly grasp. The greatest tragedy related to the third instinct is the way we have given it to children. We have given sexuality to children totally cut off from spirituality, from ethics, and as a result, we now have a generation of teenagers who are paying a heavy price for this, not just in the fact that there has been a 200% in um, illegitimacy, a tremendous increase in teenage pregnancies and teenage um, 
sexually transmitted diseases, but even a tripling of teenage suicides in the last 30 years. So as a culture, we have a tremendous responsibility here to reassess for the sake of our children what the place of sexuality in our lives, and I try to do that in my chapter on relationships, because after all, relationships are at the heart of every life. And I know in my own life, when I got married late, I was 35 when I married, my husband was 38, and it was pretty explosive because I'm a kind of um, a little chaotic Mediterranean who w lives and moves together with my tribe, you know, my mother, my sister, our friends. You know, my husband says now that on a good day he walks into our home and he knows half the people eating around the kitchen table. My mother is incapable of opening the door to the Federal Express delivery man or the gardener without inviting them in to try some delicacy that she's recently cooked. So this, this is the kind of tribal chaos in which we live. And into this walks my incredibly meticulous husband. And I remember the first day that I described in my book when we were back from our honeymoon and we were sitting around our kitchen table opening our mail. And half an hour later, I saw that there was a flock strewn with my envelopes that had been torn by my naked hands while he had two neat piles, you know, of letters open with a letter opener and the envelopes stacked neatly on one corner and the letters on the other, and we looked at each other as though he thought he had married a savage. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I thought I had, I had married a, an absolutely relentless perfectionist, and how, what were the two of us going to do together? And I remember that week going to um, church and listening to the dean at the Houston Cathedral give a, a sermon on becoming married. And I write about this sermon in my book because it was very powerful. He, he said that marriage is not something that you do, it's something that you become. It's a process. And he talked about the darker side of intimacy, allowing, allowing ourselves to show the most vulnerable part of ourselves. But so often we're afraid to do that because we're afraid to tear away the masks and to show who we truly are, because we think that it's the dark side that is what we truly, truly are. Instead of trusting that we need to go beyond all those dark emotions and fears and um, mental thoughts that disturb us and get to who we truly are, which is something very profound, something eternal, the soul, spirit, God, something that we see in people at different moments of intensity in their lives and we see in our own life too. So in the course of um, writing this book, in the course of developing both the three instincts and the fourth, I saw how incredible it is that in our own culture we have tried to find fulfillment through the first three instincts exclusively. And we wonder why we failed. And I think this is part of the shock regarding O.J. Simpson. We cannot imagine that this hero who had everything, not just fame and success and money, but also talent, and we worship talent in this culture, we cannot believe that he was so tormented inside and so totally full of, the, of really all three of the greatest plagues of our modern culture addiction, depression, and aggression, all three together. And what I'm saying in the book that when we ignore the fourth instinct, we are bound to be prey to one or of the three or all three of the modern tragedies. And that we'll never be able to solve the problems of addiction, alcoholism, suicide, without recognizing that there is in human beings what Pascal called the God-shaped vacuum which is what I call the fourth instinct. And we'll never be able to fill the God-shaped vacuum except with God. Now, you may not want to call God, God, although I had a debate with my editor. You know, editors in New York, they, they feel that, um, that people are afraid of the word God. And I, have, I remember that conversation where I said, listen, there's no other way to talk about God except by mentioning God as far as I'm concerned. Not that this word really captures it, but we would be amputating thousands of years of literature and theology 
and powerful poetry that revolves around God. What is interesting is that in the book I try to relate all these things to something very practical and everyday. Because, you know, so much of the literature around spirituality has been so theoretical. And I believe that it's time to move beyond theory and beyond words and put these things into practice. That's why I call my book A Guide in Practical Spirituality. Because the key chapter in the book is a chapter called Choosing to Evolve. And what I'm arguing there is that every day, with our everyday choices, we choose to evolve. And when I say everyday choices, I really mean that. Every time we choose to be loving rather than vindictive, we're taking a step towards unfolding our spiritual heritage. That's easier said than done. We've all been brought up on little phrases like, uh, I don't get mad, I get even. And we think that's real smart. What it really means is that we carry that resentment and that anger in us. The person we're trying to get even with may no longer even remember who we are. But we're still carrying that. I was reading Andrew Young's biography that just came out recently. He calls it Spiritual Memoirs, and it's a wonderful book. And he said, I don't get mad, period. If we can get in that place where we keep tracking, as Royal said earlier, no matter what the sideshow is, then we truly arrive at that state that Kipling described in his poem Eve. You know, if you can keep your head while everybody around you is losing theirs. That's the state that we can only reach when we follow one of my, one of the most often repeated and most powerful phrases in the Bible, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all shall be added unto you. If we really recognize what that means, it's the most powerful statement. And I know from my own life that whenever I was connected with that, I could achieve miracles. And whenever I wasn't, I was discouraged, depressed, and fearful about moving on. I remember when, I, since we were here in the company of writers, I remember after my first book, which I wrote at the age of 23, I was asked to write more books on women. My first book was called The Female Woman. It was a book about the, the extremism in the feminist movement and a certain attempt to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as I put it, to make women feel that motherhood was the product of social conditioning, that women didn't really want to be mothers and all that. It's hard to even remember what it was like in the early 70s because all that has really changed now. So my book was published at the age of 23, and I went around the world promoting it, in, uh, just translated in 17 languages. And then suddenly there I was, in my lonely hotel room in Brussels in the middle of my world tour, and I was feeling pretty miserable. And the question that kept going through my head was the Peggy Lee question. Is that all there is? Is that it? Fame and money and financial independence, is that it? And I was very blessed that I achieved those things early because then I knew that that wasn't it. Now, of course, I could have played the what-if game. The what-if game is, oh, yeah, but what if my book had sold a million copies instead of 200,000? Or what if I was on the cover of three news magazines? You know, the what-if game that so many people play. I call it the Donald Trump complex. <laughs> but fortunately, I didn't play that game. And instead, what I did is I turned down every offer to keep writing about the subject because I felt I had said anything I really wanted to say about it. I had nothing new to say, and I didn't want to just waste my life becoming a sort of expert on this subject. So I, instead I locked myself up and wrote a book which nobody wanted to publish. I wrote a book called After Reason about the lack of a spiritual dimension in our culture and taking it back to the Renaissance and the extreme belief in human rationality to solve all problems. And that was really a turning point decision for me. Because as I sat there in my room with mounting bills, because the money I made from the female woman was quickly spent, and mounting rejection slips, I actually had 36 rejection slips. And um, 
a mounting kind of desperation about my writing career and my future, I kept falling back on the only thing we really have, which is our own inner resources. The kind of spiritual muscle, as I call it. And interestingly enough, it's during hard times that we can exercise the spiritual muscle more. It's one of the unfortunate things about how God has set up this earth, that we all grow more through pain and through the hard times. When everything is going well, we are coasting. When things go bad, we need to fall back on resources we may not even know we had. And you hear that phrase, you know, this crisis, this sickness, this death brought the best out in him or in her. And then we awaken dormant parts of ourselves that we thought didn't exist. And you see that in the concentration camp literature. If you read Viktor Frankl or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, they often say how in a concentration camp, where you are, when you are stripped of everything, sometimes they felt more alive than in the middle of everything they had in the world. And I always say that when people sometimes ask me in interviews, well, it's easy for you, you know, you have everything you want, it's easy for you to say that. And I say, don't listen to me, the message is the same. Whether it's somebody speaking from a concentration camp or somebody speaking from Western influence, the true message is the same. Because as I'm saying in the book, I'm not saying anything new. If I was saying anything new, it would be wrong. Because every truth has already been uttered. All we're doing is finding new ways to express it because different people will be touched by one expression and other people will be touched by another expression. People who like their truth presented in something that is more scientific like the idea of the fourth instinct because they like the idea of feeling that there is such an instinct that's universal and we can all ignore at our peril. And in the book I have a whole section on how do we access this instinct. I have seven threads through the labyrinth as I call them. And they include art and science. Science, it's just, this is one of my favorite chapters because I fell in love with Einstein and his little equation, E equals MC square. Because it's really, for me, the equivalent of St. John the Beloved's God is love. It's like saying that everything in the universe is the same energy. And I, I was fascinated when I was doing research on this chapter to discover that when Einstein first coined that little formula, he had called EL, L equals MC square. Now those of you who are prosaic may think that L was light, but I like to think that L was love. And whether it was love or light, the truth is that that one little formula sums up the universe for me. E equals MC square, everything, everything we are, everything that's around us is ultimately different forms of density of love. And if we can manifest this in our everyday lives, then nothing else really truly matters. I, I had this dream a few years ago about my life, which has become an incredible strengthener. I was on a train, and the train was going home to God, which is how I see my life. And on the train were my family and my close friends. And everything that happened to me outside the train was scenery. And some of it was beautiful scenery, and some of it was ugly scenery. But it was all scenery, and the train kept moving on. You know, it's so liberating. Because then you don't cling to what happens to you, the good and the bad. Because the good goes, and the bad goes. And yet we so often cling to it with desperation. And then it's so much harder to move on. The most painful thing in my own life was losing my first child that was born, stillborn. And yet it was also the most profound awakener. Because in the course of that experience, I discovered parts of myself I never knew were there. And I discovered what the Bible means with that phrase, to build your house on a rock rather than on the sand. Building a house on the rock can only be developing our own inner structure of support and recognizing that ultimately that's the only thing we can depend on. Everything else can go in one second. And then it doesn't mean we don't fulfill our dreams 
another interviewer during my book tour said to me, you mean are you telling people to just go for the four things and forget everything else? I said, not at all. I'm saying go for your dreams, whatever they may be, books, articles, screenplays, anything. Just go for the moon and the sun. But realize that you're going to be much more effective, much more powerful, much more successful if you, t if you don't really believe that that bestseller or that Oscar is going to make you happy. Then you're really free because you can take risks. You can say whatever you really feel is in your heart and you don't constantly look over your shoulder to see, are they going to like me? Is this what they really want to hear? You dare to be you and you dare to speak in your own voice. And these have always been the people who have most touched others because there is an authenticity that rings true. And we always know when it's the counterfeit repetition of something that has worked before. So there are, I want to leave enough time for questions. So let me just make three other points about how to access the fourth instinct. There, I won't have time to cover all of them, but uh, the rest of them are in the book. The first one is through our dreams. In fact, often when I give writers workshops, uh, people ask me, how do I start being a writer? People who may have never written before, but they want to start writing. And my advice is always start writing your dreams down. Don't show them to anybody. Don't censor yourself. Write down whatever is there. And they say, I don't dream. I said, trust me. Give yourself 30 days. You do dream. Just before you go to sleep, prepare yourself to remember your dreams. I was in Egypt um, a few years ago, and I went to those Egyptian temples where they have sleeping chambers, where going to sleep was really a sacred act. They were preparing themselves through prayer and meditation and often fasting to go through to the other side and bring back the wisdom of the other side. It was so different from the way we go to sleep. We crash. It's like we go, go, go all day and then we literally crash for a few hours before we start again. This experience in the Egyptian temples was very helpful to me when I had my children because as mothers of newborns know, sleep is the most precious resource. So I, all these sort of wakeful nights where you get up to breastfeed and to comfort a crying child became for me opportunities for, wake, for spiritual wakefulness. I would nurse my baby and pray or meditate or reconnect with the divine. And so those moments, of peace became very precious. So dreams are a great way to connect with that part of ourselves. Another is listening to our inner voices. You know, it wasn't just Joan of Arc who listened to voices. Now it has been acceptable again to call them our guardian angels. Even Time Magazine had a cover story on angels. And I recently had on my show, I have this weekly television show called Critical Mass, I had a woman called Sophie Burnham on my show who wrote quite a few books on angels. And Sophie was telling me how when she, had a, when she first had an encounter with an angel, she just did not tell anybody about it. She thought it can't be. And then gradually she had to acknowledge the reality of angelic figures in our lives. But don't worry if you don't believe in angels and you just believe in intuition, that's okay. If you just believe in hunch, that's okay. Whatever you call it, just begin to trust it more. Because the more we trust it, the stronger the voice becomes. My dream is to be able to convince an entire nation to give one-tenth of the amount of attention we give to our bodies, to our souls. Nobody thinks anything about exercising for an hour a day. But it would seem really a little extreme to ask somebody to give attention to their souls for an hour a day. Oh, come on, you know, that's really bizarre. Well, I don't have that time. As Gladstone wrote in his memoirs, I pray every day for one hour, except when I'm very busy when I pray for two. 
And I can assure you in my life, in my own life, the more I have to juggle a book tour, a campaign, two little children, the more vital it is for me to take that time to center myself, to reconnect myself. Otherwise, I give from a very inferior part of myself, and I don't like that. I don't like, nothing is worth sacrificing this essence to, nothing, not the greatest prize on this earth, and not the greatest uh, achievement on this earth. If we bring that attitude into everything we do, it's inc incredibly empowering and incredibly liberating. The, we talked about the, our dreams, we talked about listening to our voices, the third way to access this um, fourth instinct is through reaching out and helping others. Because as every major religious tradition has said, the greatest uh, impediment towards rediscovering and reconnecting with God is our self-centeredness. That's why becoming a parent is such a powerful spiritual experience often, because we can no longer see the world exclusively in terms of me. The minute you become a mother and they ask you, how are you? My first thought is, well, Isabella has an earache and Christina isn't really getting on very well at school because you begin to see the world first in terms of your children. But then the next step is to reach out beyond our immediate family, to reach out and touch and help those who most need us. And that's why I feel that volunteerism, giving not just money but time, is at the heart of a life devoted to God and service. That's my other dream, to convert people <laughs> to giving at least an hour for five days a week to service, to doing something to others. I'll have to take my children with me when we are at the homeless shelter or the emergency food bank and to see how children love to be of service with their parents and to be able to instill this early on. There are three magic words I want to leave you with. The first is attitude. I see that with my two little girls. Isabella, whom you met, embraces life fully. She She's the most sort of sensual, Zorba the Greek type of little girl. She celebrates life every moment. Christina is my tortured intellectual. Everything is why and why not. So I see it's a great education for me to watch the two of them. Three weeks ago, Isabella rushed to my room in the morning and said, covered in chicken pox, and she's what she just got overnight, and she said, Mommy, me got chicken pops. And she started counting them. In the meantime, Christina, the five-year-old, was weeping in the corner. Mommy, I'm going to get chicken pox from Isabella. So here was a marvelous manifestation of attitude. The one who had chicken pox was very fine with it and going on with her life. The other one who didn't have chicken pox was crying because she was afraid she might get it. But we all have many chicken pox examples in our own life of how we do that. So attitude is the magic word because ultimately the only thing we can really affect in our own lives is not what happens to us, but how we feel about what happens to us. The second magic word is trust. Thanks to Jean-Paul Sartre and the existentialists and the, this entire movement of philosophers that many people may not have heard of, but nevertheless we are prisoners of, we have come to believe that we are living in an indifferent universe, meaningless and indifferent. And we need to change that. We need to reconnect with the fact that we are living in a universe full of meaning, full of benevolence. And that's why my favorite phrase in terms of trust in the Bible is that not a sparrow falls, but that God is behind it. What an incredible statement. Nothing, nothing at all happens. Not even a sparrow falling on the ground that God doesn't know about and that is not behind it. There is purpose to everything, the pain and the joy, the sorrow and the glory. And the third word is gratitude. We tend to wake up every morning and focus on what is not working in our lives. How often do we get up and focus on what is working in our lives? I recently interviewed Dr. Tobe, who's uh, written a book on and prayer and the healing power of prayer and 
And uh, he also writes a lot about weight loss in the book and a lot of practical things. And he said to me, you know, the greatest way to lose weight is to count your blessings rather than count calories. And he was so right, because so often we eat because we want to feel that emptiness. When we begin to feel that emptiness with the recognition that we are incredible spiritual beings, we don't need as much food. I mean, I always had a food problem before I, before I reconnected with that part of myself. In fact, in one uh, English magazine, when I lived in England in the 70s, I was described as a Greek pudding. <laughs> so I, I speak from personal experience. <laughs> Whether it's uh, something as practical as weight loss or relationships or jobs, there is nothing more empowering than the recognition that we are whole and complete right now, right here, even without a job or without Mr. Right or Miss Right, and to go out in the world from that place. I know, I was 27 years old when I realized that I really wanted to be married and have children. I was 35 when I married and I was 38 when I had my first child. That was a long time in which I had to keep nurturing myself. Because otherwise, if I went out into the world with that feeling of desperation and need and lack, I can assure you nothing drives men or anybody else away faster than the feeling that you are desperate. So let me end with um, a phrase from Colette, the French writer, who wrote in her memoirs, I had such a wonderful life. If only I had realized it sooner. Thank you very much. Yes. is how do I create the time for my writing and my meditation amidst everything else going on in my life with my children, my husband. I find that in terms of writing, just to take that first, there are two different stages. There is a stage of collecting material, absorbing information, um, thinking things through, making notes, which is something very compatible with family life and um, everything else. And then there is the intense stage of writing. And I have no magic answer. That's really hard. The first one I can manage. The second one is hard. I remember finally sitting down to the fourth instinct after I'd been carrying files for 17 years from city to city in my gypsy life and sitting down in my office in Washington last spring when I actually began to sit down and write this book. And it was a constant struggle, every day. Let me not fool you. Writing is not easy. And putting everything else away is not easy, especially when you have little children. I describe in, in one of the chapters in my book the constant being torn apart by my need for solitude, not just because I had a book contract to complete, but because I was passionately engaged in the ideas in the book. I really wanted an interrupted time to get on with my book, and there would walk Isabella, running <laughs> up the steps and jumping on my lap and saying, Mommy, me want to be with you. And of course, you know, I wanted to be with her. And it, it is a tremendous tug of war. And uh, there is no solution. It's give and take. It's recognizing it's going to take longer than you want it to. It's working late at night. It's being tired. It's just putting up with a, a lot of imperfections. And um, for the final week, when it had to go to press, Michael, in fact, took the children back to Santa Barbara, and I was alone for an entire week, and I could work around the clock. So there comes a moment when you need that absolute absorption. In terms of the, the other stage, it's a lot easier. I mean, now it's a lot easier. I take my children wherever I go, practically. It's just wonderful. They can share everything except the actual process of writing. So those of you here who are writing and have little children have, the, have really 
the hardest time. At the same time, it's so recharging to be around them. And they do tend to put everything in perspective. And children are so connected with God that it makes it easier for us to stay connected. I have a story in my book, uh, a young couple that had a little baby boy, and they had already a four-year-old little girl, and they brought the baby boy home, and the little girl insisted on being left alone with her baby brother. And over the intercom, they heard her shaking up the baby brother and saying, tell me about God, I'm forgetting. And I love that because I feel we're all in the same predicament. We all have that sacred knowledge and we're all forgetting. And really, I wrote the fourth incident in the hope that it, it would awaken this memory that we all have inside us. And because the time is right, I, my first chapter is called Why Now? Why Now? And the answers are many, but two of my the most important answers are, first of all, that we are approaching the millennium. And whether you're a millenarian or not, this is a pretty remarkable birthday the world is going to have, the year 2000. And there is a definite psychological expectancy. And also because we've tried everything else and it has failed. We've tried drugs and sex and rock and roll and it hasn't worked. And we've tried fame and fortune. And most of the rich and famous are drying out at the Betty Ford Clinic. So we know there is something else that we're missing. And so we are prepared to listen to these things which otherwise would have been dismissed as irrelevant, trivial, marginal. I had Stephen Carter on my show last week who wrote a book called The Culture of Disbelief. And he was wonderful. He said it's ridiculous that we put God out of the public debate. We only bring God out like a hobby, like something we keep in the closet, we cannot discuss in the important discussion of public policy. And it's great to have a liberal Democrat say that. Because as he said, during the civil rights movement, people had no problem with preachers bringing in God and the Bible to um, try and fight segregation. But now people have a real problem if somebody comes out and says, yes, we should have sex, education, abstinence at school, because we do want our kids to make wise choices. And then they say, oh, no, this is, just, this is about religion, and what about the separation of church and state? This is just rubbish. The Founding Fathers never intended this to be the separation of, of uh, God and state, but of church and state. Yes, we do not want an establishment. In fact, I had a um, very prominent agent in New York who said to me, I don't know why you want to write this book. Why don't you write another biography? And I, I left him. He, didn't, he said, okay, if you want this book, I'll sell it for you. I said, no, I want an agent who really understands what I'm writing about and who will be there, who will be supportive. And, and I found this wonderful agent who is very supportive of this work. And ultimately, though, publishers are getting the message. You know, my editor is also M. Scott Peck's editor. When they first published the, when first, when they first published the Road Less Travel, they had no idea this was going to be such a monumental bestseller. The phenomenon of the Celestine process know, whether you agree with it or not, you know, there are some powerful insights there. In fact, interestingly enough, the first chapter of the Celestine Prophecy is called Critical Mass, which is also the title of the last chapter of my book, because it's the same theme, that the way we're going to bring about change is by changing hearts, by changing people. And when we have a critical mass of people who have been changed in this profound inner way, then we'll really be able to see the transformation all around us. Any other questions? Yes. Are you from Santa Barbara? No. Um, the, the Santa Barbara Partnership for Children w we was founded um, almost two years ago, um, and the really motivation behind it was to mobilize the community to do something for children. My personal motivation was to put into practice what I talk about, like giving back, volunteering. And so our main goal is to mobilize volunteers, to get people involved. And we published a directory called 100 or More Things You Can Do for a Child in Santa Barbara County, so that anybody can pick up this directory and find something they can do. 
because it's two hours of reading to a homeless child or becoming a big brother, big sister. And I have a lot of stories in my book from people who begin to volunteer and their lives are transformed. Because in the course of giving, they receive so much back. And it's very hard to remain totally self-centered when you are giving to others and when you see the very real problems out there. It's very hard to come back home and get totally upset because somebody has not delivered the doorknobs on time. Do you separate very much the political aspect of your husband from your... The question is, do I separate the political aspects of my husband from my own work? I do when I'm, when I'm speaking about my book, like I would never bring up my husband's campaign. Um, and very often the organizers may say they will not even take any questions on this because my book is not a Republican or a Democrat book. You know, it's a book. It's very much about universal truths. So I don't want this to become a barrier. At the same time, there is an, an overarching theme in one particular section of my book where I talk about the need to rely more on personal and social responsibility and local action and individual action rather than constantly to keep looking to the state to solve all our problems. If there's a last question, you better ask it. <laughs> yes. Yes, I assume you developed your four things. Um, if so, do you still have ups and downs in your life, or do you find that it's leveled it out? The question is, do I still have ups and downs in my life? <laughs> Um, that's actually a very important question. I normally try to cover this in my speech because it's very critical. There is nobody on this earth, and there has never lived anybody on this earth who has achieved inner spiritual perfection. Read about the saints. Read, about, forget me, you know, read about St. John of the Cross and St. Therese of Avila. While we're on this planet, we are subject to the laws of this planet, of sorrow and pain and ups and downs. The difference is that if we discover this instinct, we know how to get back to it. We have a reference point. We know how to reconnect. And for me now, it's become almost like a game. When I'm off it, I immediately know I'm off it. And I, I avoid doing certain things that are more delicate. And then I do whatever I can to get right back on it as a priority. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is a pilot, and he said to me, you know, most of the time, airplanes fly off course. The only reason we don't have more plane crashes is because they have an impeccable feedback mechanism. Um, we have a pilot here. Maybe you are wrong, Carl. But the idea was that it's on course, off course. So when you are off course, you can know how to get on course. So I think it's the same in life. As long as we observe and know how to get back to this place, and make it a priority to get back to this place. That's all we can hope for. Keep your hearts out, man. <laughs> Part of the perks that come with uh, uh, the writers' conference. Thank you so much, Ariana. And uh, she's going to be working there uh, until. She drops because she's a wonderful person and has given so much to us, and I think you'll love the book.